Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, it's uh, been a lot easier to ride your bicycle over the last couple of years here in Hamilton because of some dedication to uh, some pretty extensive and, and, and forward-thinking bike programs, whether it's the uh, the conversion, of course, on Cannon Street or uh, the conversion on Bay Street into to, to bike lanes and some others that are being planned. But that costs money, right? Well, one of our partners in this, of course, was the provincial government through their cap-and-trade program. Well, we all know now that the Ford government has canceled the cap-and-trade program, and Councillor Chad Collins just gave us uh, an idea and painted a pretty bleak picture about what that lack of money is going to do now when it comes to our affordable housing stock and the repairs that need to be done. Cycling also is uh, being victimized by this. With an end to the cap-and-trade program, the brakes have been pressed on cycling funding for the city. If no other funding emerges, uh, guess who's going to pay for it? Yeah, you, me, on our property taxes. Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. How are you doing? Good. It's uh, it seems like we're going backwards in time here. This is this is downloading all over again, and no funding. And you guys at the city, you're on your own again. It's it's a little frightening. It, it certainly is. Yeah, and I and I don't think anybody should be surprised uh, to find out that the. Uh, Ford government is sort of doing exactly what they said they were going to do when they were running, which is to cut, 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 um, you know, uh, quote-unquote respect the taxpayer, although certain taxpayers are getting more respect than others. Um, you know, uh, municipal residents are taxpayers as well, and every provincial program that gets downloaded onto cities gets dumped onto our property tax base, which means we're paying more. Well, and and as we were saying when we talked about the impact this is having on uh, on the affordable housing uh, file as well. Uh, this is not as if they're dipping into their own pocket for this. The, the, the province actually, through the way this program was structured, it's a flow-through agency. I mean, the you know the, the the money is paid, people paid to get those credits, and then that money is disseminated. And this was one of the beneficiaries of this program. So uh, that, they're not saving any money at all. What they're simply doing here is canceling programs. Well, exactly, and not only that, but the cap and trade program, and the you know Doug Ford persists in calling it a carbon tax. It's not a carbon tax, and it never has been. Uh, the cap and trade program is a market that was set up for large industrial emitters. Uh, basically, there's a, a cap is set on how much greenhouse gas emissions they can emit, and uh, and so if you uh, innovate and if you invest in your business and you bring your emissions down below the cap you get extra credits. You can, in turn, sell those to a business that's above its its cap so that they can cover the shortfall. It's actually a conservative um, uh, economic tool that was presented as an alternative to kind of heavy-handed left-wing regulation of industries. Conservative economists and politicians said, instead of that, let's set up a marketplace and we'll... Uh, We'll let the market figure it out. We'll let investors and we'll let businesses innovate and come up with the best way to do this. It's actually very similar to the model that was used to eliminate acid rain in the 80s and 90s. And so this was put in place. Uh, it's been working very successfully. Um, you know, it's already in operation in California and in Quebec. Ontario joined that a couple of years ago. And then the conservative government canceled the project, which was developed by conservative governments. So it's it's frustrating. Well, especially from that standpoint, because it was a partnership, and, and, and when you say, you know, for the people, which seemed to be the mantra for Doug Ford as he was running for this job back in the springtime, uh, you got to ask yourself, which people? Uh, because clearly, uh, you know, the, the people in the corner offices on those big offices in Bay Streets that are saying, I don't want to pay this tax anymore, clearly have his ear. But people in communities like this that need affordable housing, that want to have sustainable neighborhoods, uh, walkable streets, uh, and safe streets, apparently don't have a voice at Queen's Park. Well, and also schools. I mean, school funding 
uh, for, for necessary repairs and upgrades to make schools more energy efficient uh, have also been uh, some of the people who have lost in, in this cancellation of the cap-and-trade program, not to mention the fact that the companies that bought carbon credits in good faith on that uh, that project are um, you know have now are out billions of dollars that's money that you know we are potentially liable for i mean there are a number of lawsuits pending against the yeah that that other shoe hasn't dropped yet has it no no and so you know we could be on the hook for billions of dollars that these companies spent uh, you know because they were engaging in good faith you know they were trying to be responsible um, you know, large industrial partners. And uh, unfortunately, we now have a government that doesn't believe that climate change is something we need to do anything about. So where does this leave us? I mean, you know, it took us a long time to, to accelerate the program. And, and there are still some people, still some people on council, I guess, for that matter, Ryan, that are kicking and screaming as we try to do this. But we are moving forward on this. And that's that's a good news story. But now, you know, you know what the numbers are right now. Apparently, we need about $3.7 billion to do the or million, rather, to do this. Uh, we've spent a million. We've got to ask ourselves, where's the rest of the money going to come from? Well, the good news is that all the money that was approved for Hamilton last, you know, er, er, I guess last year, early this year, in the last round of funding for these, um, the cycling fund, that money was transferred to the city and has, um, and, you know, and is, is in a bank account that's held by the city. So that was one of the last things the Liberal government did, was make sure to get that money uh, allocated, you know, for concerns that you know the program would be cancelled if uh, if the Conservatives formed the government, and of course, that's exactly what happened. So the next couple of years worth of projects that were funded under this provincial cycling fund are still covered. Anything beyond that, we have to look at other sources of funding now. Which means property taxes more than likely. Well, sure. I mean, before the province set up this fund, um, cycling and road infrastructure was funded out of our general um, transportation budget. And that is going to essentially go back to being the case. So one of the things that, that I've you know tried to argue is that money that we invest in cycling infrastructure, it shouldn't be considered as just an extra cost over and above the budget that we already have for our roads. We should be looking at it as an investment in actually reducing our overall infrastructure life cycle obligations. Because one bicycle produces essentially zero wear and tear on the road. You can run 10,000, 50,000 bike trips and they'll produce as much um, wear and tear as you know one medium-sized truck. So you know the more the more people we can get uh, you know riding bikes by making it easier and safer to do so, we're actually extending the life of our road network. We're reducing our long our long-term road repair and reconstruction costs. By the way, you touched on something a minute ago that I think is very germane to this discussion, that, that there seems to be a mindset uh, with this government that, that climate change is not happening. And, and you know, they, they don't believe in, in developing long-term programs to try to deal with this, which I find very frustrating because it's not just the cycling program and it's not just the repair costs, of course, for some of our, our infrastructure like schools and, and affordable housing. It's going to have an impact on road sewers and everything else. As climate becomes more difficult for us, we've already seen examples of that, well, with heavier rainstorms, flooding, of course, because of rain, more severe weather, colder temperatures. Uh, in this climate, our roads are going to—they're going to crumble faster. The sewers are going to—we're going to need more money for infrastructure, and that was what this program was set up for. And and the question we have to ask ourselves now: Are you going to do something about this? Are you going to replace this funding with another program? If so, tell us. And if not, then why not? Well, exactly, and that's—you know—I mean, there, there are still some people talking about global warming as you know this theoretical thing that may or may not happen in the future. Um, you know, and, and to, to just to be clear, the Ontario government um, are saying that they believe that global warming is real, 
Um, and they're saying that they have a plan, but we haven't seen the plan, and they've canceled the existing plan, which strikes me as being quite reckless. But global warming is happening right now. We're already almost a degree on average warmer than the planet was a century ago, you know, a century and a half ago at the beginning of the industrial era. So that less than one degree of warming, we already have a lot more extreme weather events. We have a century flood every, you know, every year, every couple of years, sometimes two or three a year. Um, because the winters are becoming more variable, we have a lot more freeze-thaw cycles. And that really does a number on the roads because what happens is heavy trucks drive on the road and they, they damage the roadbed. And then when it rains, water seeps into that. When it freezes, the water expands into ice. And then when it thaws, the ice melts and drains out. And then you end up having the road collapse. And that's what causes potholes. So the more heavy vehicles we have on the road and the larger number of vehicles we have, combined with the you know, a more accelerated freeze-thaw cycle, we're going to see a lot more rapid road damage. Uh, you know, when the, the, I was going to say when the flooding started. I mean, there have always been instances. But when it started to increase in, in magnitude, uh, you know, I, it was one of the first times many of us heard that phrase of a hundred-year storm. In other words, a storm so severe you only see one of them like every hundred years or so. We're getting four or five of those every summer now. Absolutely, yeah. And not only that, but as the city has been sprawling outwards, you know, and kind of growing on low-density, um, you know, green fields and, and farmlands and natural lands instead of, you know, growing in sort of a taller, more intense way, we've actually been growing out and building on top of floodplains and building on top of, um, you know, river valleys, for example. And uh, and this is, is essentially exposing more of our infrastructure to the kind of flooding and damage that we can expect to see more of with global warming. So it's a, it's a one-two punch. Well, and, and again, we, we're going to come down to the word partnerships here because the municipalities, whether it's Hamilton or Toronto or anybody else, can't do this by themselves. There's got to be uh, a, a concerted effort, a partnership between the, the city, the province, and the, and the federal government to try to address this. If, if there's one thing that recent provincial politics have made very clear, it's that cities are essentially the, the orphan children of Canadian constitution. I mean, we only exist as, a, as an act of legislation by the province. The province ultimately controls everything that happens in cities, and that means they're ultimately responsible for it. So for them, wiping their hands and saying, this isn't our problem, it actually is their problem. But, I mean, we're still working on a model that was set up in 1867 when this country was constituted. You know, and in that particular case, I think 74% of the people in this country lived in rural areas. Uh, I think it's 81% now live in urban areas. And, and the, these governments, and it's not just the ones that are in Queen's Park and in Ottawa now, I'm talking about the last 60, 70 years, don't seem to want to accept the fact that that means you're going to have to change the paradigm here. And that's going to mean some change responsibilities and some financial decisions. Bill, can I just can I just say how impressed I am right now that we have a conversation that started about bike lanes and has turned into the Constitution? <laughs> <laughs> stay stay with me. I, I've got more here. So, but it, <laughs> no, it, it, but it's all part of the bigger situation here. And and again, it's 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 politicians and governments that have uh, they they think in four year cycles and they're not looking at this and saying we need to do something that's going to be more sustainable. Well, the thing is, the stakes are getting higher and higher because the decisions that politicians make, particularly municipal politicians, are more and more important. You know, and when they fail to lead, when they fail to understand the strategic um, issues that they're dealing with, and when they, you know, as you say, when they when they make decisions based on the next election and not based on the next 25 or 50 years, we all pay the price. We all suffer for short-sightedness and lack of strategic thinking. You know, these, what, what our governments do, you know, for and to us make a huge difference in our day-to-day -day lives. They change the kind of options we have available. They change the choices that we're able to make to how we want to live our own lives. 
and uh, and you know we need to pay more attention to what's going on and with an election coming up yes please get out there get educated and make an intelligent voting choice because I, I can tell you what's going to happen. I mean, you know, if the if the province doesn't come back with an alternative funding source for this, for for both of these projects that we've talked about this hour, uh, that means that city council is going to be left with holding the, the ball here. And, and uh, they're going to get into budget cycles. In six months from now, Ryan, are you and I are going to be having this discussion about, you know what, they just cut the funding for these programs now because they don't have the money for it anymore. Uh, it was great when there was a partnership and they said, okay, we don't have to worry about that. That's provincial money. Now we can spend our our municipal tax dollars someplace else. They don't have that luxury anymore. Sure. Well, uh, Brent Tadarian was the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver, and he sort of famously says, if you want to know a city's vision and its priorities, look at its budget. Don't, don't look at the vision statements. Look at where they actually spend their money. And when it comes to budget time, these kind of these, these strategic ideas sort of fall away. And it becomes, okay, how can we scratch a few more dollars for this? How can we, you know, where can we trim away at that? And then six months later, we talk about wanting to implement a policy and they go, oh, sorry, that's not in the budget. And so an entire year's worth of progress gets pushed back. Uh, you know, and, and that has certainly happened with the city's cycling plan. I mean, it was developed in 2009, 2010. We were almost a decade on and they were supposed to spend $2 million a year on cycling. Um, the backup plan was to spend a million dollars a year on cycling. They've been spending about three or four hundred thousand dollars a year on cycling on average. Some years have been higher, some years have been lower. But at that rate, it's going to take about 50 or 60 years to build out the cycling plan that we thought was a good plan in 2009. As Terry Cook likes to say, it didn't take that long to build the pyramids. Yeah, well, and therein lies the problem because uh, it's foot dragging. We, we elect people that are really, really good at talking the talk, but when it comes to walking the walk and actually being dedicated to these problems, I, I mean, look, you and I had this discussion about two-way conversions in the city, too. I, I was on council. That's going back, what, 12 years to, to when I was on council, 13 years ago. We had a plan, and we had a timetable for it, and we're woefully behind in the timetable for conversions right now. And, and again, it's city council dragging their heels on this stuff. And the amazing thing about, about the two-way conversions is that every two-way conversion has been hugely successful. It's not like we tried it and it blew up in our faces and we thought, oh, we're never going to do that again. We convert a street back to two-way, we add in some curbside parking, we make the sidewalks a little bit nicer, and the street springs back to life. And every time we do it, we have the same result. And yet each time we get to the next project, the same naysayers and doubters and squelchers go, oh, this is going to be a disaster. No one's going to come down here. It's going to be gridlock. That never happens. Why do we still listen to these people? They've been wrong every time. What's going to happen? To, there's a couple of projects. I'm going to swing this back now. We've got a minute or two left here uh, to, to where we started with cycling. And, and there's some obviously some discussions going on about bike lanes on two of our main arterial roads here, King and Main Street. And, and it's going to take a courageous council decision to move forward on that because there's been a pushback, as there has been with just about every other project. But now I know the money's in the bank for the projects and the, the money that we got from the government, but we, the tap has been turned off right now. You have to wonder about the viability and, and whether or not this council is actually going to have the, the money and the dedication and the courage to actually move forward on some of these other projects and the next phases of this master plan. Sure. I mean, again, one of the issues I think that we need to really push hard is the fact that the cost to implement these things is really tiny. I mean, we're talking about less than 1% of the, of the roads budget. It's, it's a tiny, tiny investment for an outsized 
benefit. You know, I mean, if you, you know, if you were to build a, a continuous two-way protected cycle track across the city along Main Street, I mean, you would have thousands and thousands of people using that on a daily basis. You have people sort of desperately trying to use Main Street now, and it's terrifying. And I say that as a, a lifelong kind of confident cyclist who will ride in any weather and on any street. I mean, it would be frightening to do, and there'd be a lot of pushback while it was happening. And then six months after it was over, everyone would go, oh, well, that was fine. That actually worked out pretty nicely. The street's safer. We don't have huge, horrific crashes every couple of days like we do on Main Street. I mean, one of the arguments I'd make to people who see Main Street as only a way to drive is that if you can make the street safer, then it means you're not going to get stuck behind a you know huge collision with a car turned upside down and another car smashed into the side of a building. That's one of the main sources of delays on Hamilton Street is getting stuck behind bad drivers who crash their cars. Well, we'll see what happens, and uh, maybe, maybe we'll wake up one day and the province will say, oh, by the way, we've got alternative funding. Everything's going to be fine, but uh, I'm, I'm not holding my breath. We'll see. What, perhaps, perhaps. Ryan, thanks as always. Appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it, Bill. Ryan McGreal, of course, editor of Raise the Hammer. Uh, this puts an awful lot of pressure on city councilors, obviously. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about them dragging their heels and be a little reticent to make some of these tough decisions. Partnerships with other levels of government, when the council knows that there's going to be money there, that they can tap into for programs like this, for program, programs like fixing uh, derelict buildings. It makes their job that much easier. But when that pressure mounts because there is no more funding, that's in that angst, that's when you start making bad decisions. And we are the property taxpayers. We're the ones that get right in the back of the neck every time this happens. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.